Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malas with Restore or Retreat. And this is another week of Delta Dispatches. How are things in the Malas household this week, Simone? Jacques, we have had such nice weather lately. Even the rain was welcome. I agree. You know, and it's been really nice to have some moments outside, of course, I celebrated Earth Day in my yard. Um, The gardenia, the jasmine, sweet bay, magnolia are all in full bloom. So it's very beautiful and fragrant. And I actually got to do, you'll never guess it, but some backyard birding. Um, So it was a low-key Earth Day for me, but, you know, love getting outside. How was your Earth Day? How did you celebrate? It was certainly nice to, to be at home with my kids, and, and we got to talk about it some. And at Restore Retreat, we were uh, able to share again our virtual flyover just to remind folks um, that that's an option available while we're safe at home, um, but also had some kids' activities to offer as well for all those um, homeschooling parents like myself. Yeah, and it's a huge milestone for Earth Day, 50 years that we're celebrating this year. Um, And I'm so glad to hear that you all are sharing the virtual flyover. As a reminder, Simone and Dr. Alicia Renfro, who we've had a number of times on the show, um, will take you on a flyover of Terrebonne and the Atchafalaya Basins to learn about restoration and land loss and more. Um, And the good folks over at Restore the Mississippi River Delta, including Ryan Chauvin, who produces this show, um, put together an updated coastal care package for Earth Day. So you can check it out at MississippiRiverDelta.org slash earth dash day. And you can enjoy that content and share it with your kids and others. So um, in addition to the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, we also had another big milestone, um, an anniversary this week. On Monday was the 10th anniversary of the Gulf oil spill. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit more later in the show about where we are 10 years later, particularly highlighting um, some of the restoration progress um, as well as, you know, ongoing needs in, in terms of restoring our coast and the ecosystems and wildlife um, and communities that have been through so much in the last 10 years. Um, but, you know, a really sad and somber day, of course. Um, and, you know, but we're also focusing on the progress. So, uh, Simone, any thoughts from you on, on 10 years later after the BP oil spill? I was going to ask you about where you were 10 years ago. There was a, a, a great article um, with uh, avid listener, not number one avid listener, but avid listener Chip Klein talking about where he was that day um, when he found out the news about, um, about Deepwater Horizon. And so I was going to ask you what you were doing, if you remember what where you were 10 years ago. Um, I was um, 13 months pregnant uh, with my first child, and so I remember that very vividly and thinking, oh, this'll this'll just be a one-time incident and um it'll be something that um, you know, I'm gonna have this baby and and everything, it'll be fine. My friends were were very busy at the time and it extended over my entire maternity leave. And I actually came back from maternity leave and it was still this catastrophic event that we were facing. And so I'll always remember where I was 10 years ago. How about yourself? You know, I was actually away from Louisiana at the time. I was living in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. I was working for for Google, so a very different life at the time. But of course, um, having grown up in, in Plaquemines Parish and seeing the devastation that the region was going through was just heartbreaking. And I remember that kind of really spurred, um, you know, this kind of 
fire in me to to do the work of restoration. I mean, that followed by, um, you know, it was shortly after, five years after Hurricane Katrina, um, two years after that was Hurricane Isaac, which devastated so many parts of Plaquemines Parish. And I started to read a lot more about these environmental issues. I read Rising Tide by John Barry, um, and it really kind of brought this um, uh, interest in me to kind of learn more about what was happening in Louisiana and what needed to happen going forward. So I remember shortly after that, moving over to, to Mother Jones that did a lot of environmental reporting. Um, Mac McClellan was an environmental reporter there at the time who did a lot of stories about um, Plaquemines Parish and about the ongoing recovery. And so I remember reading those stories and meeting Mac and working with her. And and then a few years later, I came back to Louisiana. So, um, you know, it, it was kind of a big wake up call for me and something that still to this day motivates me to do the work that we're doing. Yeah, Jacques, I do find that, um, you know, one of the things about this, this anniversary, and it is somber and, and we can't forget um, what happened, but we can look back and think about, you know, how Louisiana um, performed in the face of that adversity. And certainly we were center stage for a very long time. And a lot of it rings true to, to what's happening today about being resilient and coming together. And so I have very much appreciated the look back and, and we'll talk about that again. But um, I think we should maybe talk about the New York Times editorial because I thought that was also a kind of good look back at, at the work that we've done so far. Of course, yeah, there has been a lot of coverage and attention about the progress, about, you know, what challenges still remain in the Gulf. Um, and I think the New York Times in an editorial um, really kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of the restoration front. Um, you know, they basically said, by far the most positive development, promising is probably a better word, has been the steady accumulation of evidence that the most vulnerable stretch of the coastline in Louisiana can someday be restored or at least saved from the steady erosion that afflicted it for years. Um, you know, they talk about the $7 billion that are coming to Louisiana for environmental re restoration and the need to put that money to use given our land loss crisis, um, you know, in terms of hurricanes and the impact that those have had. And they acknowledge that Louisiana does have a 50 year, $50 billion master plan that's looking to do and has done a lot of restoration work for marsh creation, barrier island restoration, oyster shell uh, reef restoration, sediment diversions, et cetera. Um, and in fact, they say, which is a line that I think uh, really resonated with me, it's something I think we should all kind of think about every day, but inaction is not an option. Um, and then they quote our friend and, and colleague and former guest, David Muth, um, in a piece um, by John Schwartz that says basically um, that given the menace of climate change and its threat of slow but, um, but an, an um, inevitable sea level rise, um, how we need to do everything we can with the money that we have, um, you know, that unless we continue to move forward, unless we continue to build on this progress, the sea is going to win the fight. So um, definitely check out the New York Times opinion page and read that great editorial. Um, and as a reminder, you can visit our website, uh, MississippiRiverDelta.org slash decade dash after dash disaster um, to read our white paper that highlights some of the progress, but also has recommendations for where do we go from here and the, the next 10 years and the 10 years beyond to build resilience for our ecosystems, for our communities and our wildlife. And then you can also go to 
the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority has a Deepwater Horizon 10-year later page at coastal.la.gov slash DWH10. So check out those resources and learn more about what's happening. Um, I'm excited to you know, bring on a guest of the show um, who's a first-time guest. There's a book that we came across that we think would be really relevant to our readership. So um, in our next segment, we're going to bring on Lawrence C. Smith, um, who is the John Atwater and Diana Nelson University Professor of Environmental Studies and, Pro- and Professor of Earth, Environmental, and Planetary Sciences at Brown University. He is a fellow of the American Geophysical Union and of the John S. Guggenheim Foundation, and his scientific research has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, the Los Angeles Times, and the Washington Post, as well as on NPR, CBC Radio, and BBC. Um, his first book, The World in 2050, won the Walter P. Kistler Book Award and was a Nature's Nature Editor's Pick of 2012. Um, today, we're going to be talking with him about a new book that's out that's pretty relevant to our topic and our show. It's called Rivers of Power, How Our Natural Force raised kingdoms, destroyed civilizations, and shapes our world. So we'll be right back after the break with Lawrence C. Smith talking about his new book, Rivers of Power. Stay tuned. National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org Louisiana. Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress. That has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. Restore Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast community and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. I'm Samoma Laws with Restore Retreat, with my, along with my co-host, Shock Abear of the Environmental Defense Fund. We're here every Thursday on 990 WGSO and online through our podcast. 
Today's Coastal Voice of the Week is Phyllis from Iowa, Louisiana. It is my coast, your coast, the people's coast. We have to protect it for my grandchildren and their future family. Thank you, Phyllis. Just a reminder that you can fill out your Coastal Voice on the Restore the Mississippi River Delta webpage. We are very happy to have on the line Lawrence. He is the author, Lawrence Smith, sorry, is the author of a book all about rivers. And we're going to get into that a little bit. Um, but we want to know more about you, Lawrence. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, sure. First, thanks for having me. Um, My name is Lawrence Smith. I'm a professor of environmental studies and of uh, earth, planetary, and environmental sciences at Brown University. Um, And before that, I was a professor and chair of geography at UCLA for uh, over 20 years. And um, I love rivers. I've been studying them my entire career. I study them on the ground and from boats and uh, especially using satellite remote sensing. And um, through this book, I'm, I'm just hoping to um, share more about these remarkable natural features and, and impress upon everyone how important they are to us. So by coastal, right, Lawrence? So did you grow up? Uh, obviously, you grew up on um, one side or the other. So tell us, where'd you grow up? I grew up in the Midwest, the upper Midwest. Oh, in the middle. <laughs> to the Mississippi, the mighty Mississippi. Actually, I'm from Chicago. <laughs> And, um, you know, flopped around, uh, went to L.A. for my first job, and then uh, after 20-some years, um, took a new job here at Brown University. That's very, very interesting. So so Little Lawrence was al- always interested in water and rivers? You know, I was. Um, I was totally smitten with fishing as a, as a boy, and also um, uh, I had an uncle who hunted and trapped along rivers, and um, my father... Um, made a good point of, of getting me outdoors as much as possible, which I think is so important for, for kids uh, today more than ever. And um, that interest followed me uh, scientifically when I became a scientist and um, became interested in technology and satellite remote sensing and geographic information systems. And so I think I've now find a way to sew all these um, um, loves together into my, uh, my field. So, so you, like the rest of us, are um, sheltering in place with little people. Do you like to take your little people out like you used to go I, out? <laughs> I'm very fortunate. I, well, first, because I do have three little people in my house. My uh, wife and I are very happy, and it's so delightful to be locked up with them under quarantine. <laughs> Especially um, since we're fortunate enough to have a riverfront um, natural park nearby, and I and Many others in this area have been um, thronging to it during these difficult times. Uh, this is actually an exciting development that's happening in urban rivers uh, all around the country and all around the world, and is providing us um, a, a little bit of um, respite during the coronavirus epidemic. Yeah, and that, we'll talk about the Mississippi River in a little bit here, but we're experiencing the same thing here in Louisiana, kind of a renaissance of, of going outside, right? Go outside and, and find what nature has to offer you. You've written a couple of different books, if I'm correct, in the past. What, what made you wait on rivers or why rivers? Why now? Well, like I said, I have studied rivers for my entire career, as well as enjoying them recreationally. And I've my, my river research is, is highly scientific and geological. I look at things like flooding and sedimentation and erosion. But yet I always knew that there was so much more of the story to learn and hopefully to tell. And so that's why I decided to tackle this book, which goes way beyond science to look at our history and politics and technologies. 
Uh, I learned so much about these um, natural features, and um, I'm just so taken by how critical they have been to our civilization as we know it and continue to be uh, in the moving forward. So I, I want to read a description of, of your book because I think it's it's really beautiful in itself. Um, Rivers, more than any road, technology, or political leader, have shaped the course of civilization. They have opened frontiers, founded cities, settled borders, and fed billions. They promote life, forge peace, grant power, and capriciously destroy everything in their path. So the book is called Rivers of Power, How Our Natural Force Raised Kingdoms, Destroyed Civilization, and Shapes Our World. Um, Tell folks where they might be able to find it and um, tell us one of your favorite parts about the book. Well, um, it can be found pretty much anywhere uh, online and hopefully in your local stores as well, so Amazon or or what have you. And um, one of my favorite parts about the book is, well, it's all of it because I'm able to, uh, as I researched this project and learned all the different ways in which rivers touch and shape our lives, um, I think what I enjoy most is not any one specific story, but the breadth of their impact on us. Everything ranging from our politics to where we live to the shapes and sizes of nations and states to the uh, new technologies that are um, shaping our world to the strategies and outcomes of war uh, to environmental movements and the enforced cooperation between neighbors, uh, all the way to soother of stressed urban minds, as I alluded to a few minutes ago. So I I think it's really the breadth of their impact upon us that uh, most strikes me about this research. You know, I was thinking about about rivers, right, and all that you said about geographic boundaries, you know, and these kinds of things. I also thought about art, too, right? It's in, in art a lot, and there's most always some depiction of, of water and some, some of the, you know, world's masterpieces and those kinds of things. So let's talk about the specific rivers that, that you take a look at. So um, why don't you highlight a couple of those, but please save Mississippi River, because we'll get to that in the next segment. But oh. let's talk about specific some specific rivers. Sure. Well, um, I talk about nearly all of the world's great major rivers that um, you know we've all heard of, like the Nile, the Tigris-Euphrates, the Yellow, the Indus, the Mekong, the Colorado, and of course the Mississippi, which we will get to. There's a lot to say about the Mississippi. <laughs> Spoiler alert. We'll talk yeah, about no, the, it, the Mississippi <laughs> rears its head again and again and again. Um, and you know, you can enter, you you can examine these rivers at different points in our history, and see how their gifts to us and our dependence on us, our dependence upon them, has been there always, even if the nature of those um, gifts and demands change. Take, for example, the Nile River. Um, we owe the um, the origins of agricultural society to one of the great civilizations that rose in its banks the ancient Egyptians, of course, at the time of the pharaohs, one of the most stable and long-lasting civilizations uh, ever to exist on Earth. They they survived rather peaceably and happily for 3,000 years. And that was enabled because of the gift of the annual Nile flood, which was a, um, a complete magical mystery to the ancients at that time. Um, and then others who became aware of this magical, keep in mind, this is in a desert, 
that the flood was fed by the rains of far off Ethiopia, but the Egyptians didn't know that. All they saw was this gentle flood which swelled out of the desert once a year with great predictability, enabling them to plant their crops, to survive, and for a ruling class to, to form um, through the levying of taxes. Fast forward to the 1970s, and uh, that gift changed with the damming of the High Aswan Dam and the conversion of that gift of water to reliable water supply for the city of Cairo and greater Cairo uh, and hydroelectric, electric, hydroelectric power from the dam. Fast forward still further, and Cairo is now experiencing its own urban riverfront renaissance with some very high value real estate along the banks of the Nile. So this is just one example of many uh, showing how our use of these features has changed uh, historically over time. Yeah, using the Nile, I mean, that's a, a fantastic way to kind of think about how human relationships have evolved with rivers over time. And so so that's really interesting and something that I'm sure is, um, is a thread woven throughout the book about how relationships um, have changed over time with rivers, except, you know, rivers remain the constant. So, well, Lawrence, look, we're up against a break. Um, if you don't mind sticking with me, um, we're going to go through the most important river that there is, the Mississippi River, um, in our next segment. We want to talk to you a little bit about that relationship that the Mississippi has to the nation and, and to the world. So um, if you don't mind, stick with me and we'll be right back with Delta Dispatches. You bet. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. My name is Simone Laws, and we're here every Thursday on 990 WGSO and online through our new podcast. Um, you can check it out um, or check out and like the Restore Mississippi River Delta page or Restore or Retreat. You can find more details there. So I'd like to welcome back. Um, to the show, Lawrence Smith, who is the author of a beautiful book about all about rivers. Um, so Lawrence, remind folks again, the name of the book and where they can find it. And then we'll get back into the details. Yes. Thank you. The name of the book is Rivers of Power, and it could be found pretty much uh, anywhere online, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Indie Books, as well as uh, hopefully your local bookstore. Yes. So when you're um, sheltering in place, right, you now have a fascinating book that can take you to all the rivers of the world, right? <laughs> That's right. So I do, um, we were talking about um, in the last segment, uh, we focused on the Nile and how human relationship with rivers um, has evolved over time. And, and uh, I made a mention during the break that people study just one river and write whole books about that. And so it's fascinating that you've taken them and put them all together. So what, what was the most surprising thing that you learned um, in researching for the book? I think the most surprising thing I learned in researching the book is how universal our need for these rivers is. If you look at any one particular river, uh, you know, they each have their own fascinating and very local history. And I encourage all of your listeners to think about a river near you and learn a little more about what that, that natural and human history is. Uh, but when you step back and take the broad view across time and across nations, we learn that these are universally important to societies all around the world. And we have always needed rivers for five basic reasons for natural capital, for access, for territory, 
for well-being, and for power. And the details of these different categories have changed from place to place and over the centuries, but um, always this overall framework has been in place. And so that's what I gained from this very broad view was this, this high-level understanding of their importance to, to humanity. Well, we all know that one of the best real estate deals in, in all of human history revolves around the Mississippi River, right? And the need to control that. And so um, obviously our listeners are, are familiar with and very interested in the Mississippi River and, and its abundant delta. So tell us how you cover the mighty Mississippi in your book. Oh boy, would I love to talk about this for forever. <laughs> the Mississippi River is an amazing river and it's so important and so intertwined with the history of humans in North America. Uh, the Mississippi, let's just start at the beginning. The Mississippi River Valley itself was a major corridor for the earliest occupants of our continent. Um, many may be surprised to know that a great an advanced civilization flourished along the Mississippi River Valley a thousand years ago um, called the Cahokians. They had um, long trade routes. They had ruling elites. They even built um, great earthen pyramids made of, of soil and logs. They haven't survived as well as their Egyptian counterparts, but their mounds can still be seen today. Um, after that, the Mississippi and its tributaries and its topographic divides was absolutely pivotal to the discovery and the carving up of the early empires of the, the colonials. Um, colonials didn't know where the heck anything was. They had no idea how big the continent was. So they used the Mississippi and other major rivers as convenient definers of territory that they would then trade at their capitals back in Europe, not even knowing what they had. And those legal deals, those swaps of, of land that were defined by the Mississippi River proper as well as its divides, carried forward and continued to carry forward through treaty after treaty, and now uh, and shaped not only the um, expansion of the U.S., but shapes many of the um, uh, U.S. state borders still today. The Mississippi was critical to the outcome of the Civil War um, with a major siege at Vicksburg, and the, the flooding along the Mississippi has done some um, incredible um, jolts to the demography of the New Orleans area. Of course, with um, Hurricane Katrina, as many of your listeners will remember, which had saw a depopulation, particularly of, of um, lower-income Black Americans. Um, the But another big flood happened in 1927, which... Uh, sped up the great migration of black Americans from the South to Northern cities, helped to elect a president, Herbert Hoover, and actually sowed the first cracks of discord between black Americans and the Republican Party. Because of course, at that time, most black Americans were solidly uh, Republican. You know, move. I could keep going, moving on. Yeah, that's, I yeah. know, it's fascinating. <laughs> I, I, feel, <laughs> I learned mm, about 20 new things in what you just said. Yep. Um, it, it really is, fa I mean, you know, we, we say this all the time that, that the Mississippi is such a wonderful resource. And it's so interesting that you bring up so many other things that are not common, um, you know, commonly known, maybe even in the lower parts, um, you know. Lawrence, one of the things we, we have this, um, sometimes there's a debate um, that maybe the Mississippi is not as mighty as it used to be. And we, of course, disagree with that. Would you disagree with that? 
I would disagree with that. I think the Mississippi is mighty in wonderful, good ways, you know, as a transportation corridor, for example, which is all too often overlooked these days, but also as an existential threat to, um, well, some of our greatest cities and especially New Orleans, which is uh, is uh, in constant danger of eradication by the mighty Mississippi. And um, one of the more interesting um, visits I made and I've had in New Orleans was to get a tour of um, the Southeast Louisiana's urban flood control project known as CELA. And perhaps your listeners are aware of this. It's a really ambitious new pumping scheme um, for the for Jefferson Parish and the greater New Orleans uh, area. And um, I just had an amazing tour of these facilities uh, with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and um, looking at these safe rooms and bunkers and the SELA pumping stations. Because one of the things we learned from, from Katrina is that when those pumps stop, the city inundates. And so the new policy is that the pump operators are going to stay right there in the pumping stations, no matter how bad it gets. And these facilities are built strong enough to withstand a Category 5 hurricane. They've got off-grid power generators and food and water stockpiles, and even an escape hatch through the ceiling uh, to escape should things get really bad. So it's a $3 billion project, and and uh, that should Spending that kind of money in infrastructure should remind everyone of just how powerful the Mississippi is. Yeah, yeah, those are some very good points. Um, well, Lawrence, we are up against our time um, here at Delta Dispatches. I do want to remind folks once again where they can find rivers of power, how a natural force raised kingdoms, destroyed civilization, and shapes our world can be found almost anywhere, correct? That's right. Thanks so much. Um, so we do. Uh, you're not getting away that easy. Yeah. No way. Um, <laughs> we like to ask our guest a fun question just so we get to know him a little bit better. Um, and uh, frankly, you know, it's it's the only advantage we have in this show is is to ask them something that they may not expect. Right. So um, we want folks to read your books about rivers um, while they're um, sheltered in place and staying safe at home. But what is, has been your favorite quarantine book to read? Are you too busy with the little people that you don't read? <laughs> you know what? You're going to laugh. Um, my favorite book to read under quarantine, because I, I sure don't get to sit around and read lofty books about history and geography <laughs> and war, right? I'm looking Green after. I've got, a, I've got an eight-year-old and um, twin four-year-olds. Oh. And, and of all th- I'm trying to encourage my eight-year-old to write. And she's fascinated with, you know, she, she's intimidated by it, but she's also fascinated by it. So we've been delving into the self-publishing world of teen fiction on Amazon. <gasps> Amazing. And there, we have found a little gem just a couple days ago called It's the Water by an author named Mala. And um, we're just having a great time with it. It's, it's surprisingly fun for a self-published book with only two ratings. And, uh, well, um, it's, I think it might be inspiring my daughter to write and self-publish her own. So if you're really going crazy at home and you're getting super desperate, have a look at the self-publishing world on Amazon. It's fascinating. Uh, I love that. That's a great answer. Great answer. Um, just one more question before we go. What's your next book going to be about? Oh, that's a great one. I think the next will be about um, – the Not major decision. Yeah, no, I, I think that one's probably covered by now. No, I think I think the next book will be about it's time to make what the big decisions are if we're going to get serious about dealing with sea level rise and climate change or not. And just what, what 
what the decisions are we have to make and not to push one way or the other, whether we should make them or not, but just to lay out the choices and to see, um, you know, what the outcomes may be in, in either case. I think defining well, those would have, be helpful. We're going to have to check back in with you because that's obviously something that's that's affecting us here in Louisiana. Well, it's been a real treat to talk to you, Lawrence. I hope you do well with your family. I hope that self-publishing goes well, too. You'll have, we'll have to have the little author on. When she's ready. <laughs> with, with a name like Smith, I'm sure everyone will find her. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you again, Lawrence, for being on the show. We have to take a short commercial break. We'll be back with Jacques Aber. Uh, you're listening to WGSO in 990 AM and Delta Dispatches, where we're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. We'll be right back. Well, that was a really fascinating conversation, Simone. I can't wait to dig into Lawrence's book, and we'll have to have him on to discuss more about the Mississippi River and the future. Um, But we wanted to highlight another piece of content that came out this week. Hallie Parker, our communications associate with National Audubon Society, did a great blog that highlights some of the projects that have been funded as a result of the oil spill settlement. Um, that CPRA has worked with other partners to actually complete. So you can go to our website, MississippiRiverDelta.org, to read her blog and and see some of these projects. One of the themes is um, rebuilding our first line of defense. And that's something we've talked a lot about on this show. Um, You know, she highlights the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation as being the funding source for a lot of these projects um, and highlights projects like the Caminata Headlands, which used 8.8 million cubic yards of sand piped in from the Gulf of Mexico. This project was about $215 million and it created and enhanced over a thousand acres of habitat and reinforced six miles of Barrier Island headland um, habitat. Of course, there are other projects underway um, as a result of funding from NIFWIF, um, with three more barrier island projects expected to be completed by 2022. So we've touched on the importance of our barrier islands in terms of storm surge protection, as well as habitat for birds and turtles and other wildlife. But it's great to see that progress being made. And Simone, I know barrier islands are near and dear to your heart as well. Jacques, barrier islands are like my birds, if you will, and how how you talk about birds and oysters constantly. I like to talk about barrier islands, and and those, of course, are some of my favorites. They are a first line of defense, and Caminata is a really wonderful example of many different funding sources um, coming together, and um, NIFWIF was the strongest and the the biggest one that was able um, to finish building um, those headlands that was started by a couple of other different projects. And then, of course, we're very excited to see some of the projects that are underway in the Terrebonne Basin. Whiskey, of course, was completed and uh, the three barrier islands that are currently underway right now. So I like me some barrier islands. I know you do. And, and you know, I'm sure we'll be talking about barrier islands a lot more in the episodes to come if you have any say in it. And I will say I do like barrier islands, too. They're very important. Um, nature speed bumps, if you will. So another... Um, you know, theme that Hallie highlights in her blog are marsh creation projects and the work that's been done to create and restore marshes across our coast. Um, Some of the fun, some of the funds that have uh, helped with this work have come from the natural resource damage assessment process. 
And one of the projects that is highlighted is the Lake Hermitage Marsh Creation Project, which addressed significant marsh loss facing Plaquemines Parish. Um, the project leveraged NERDA money to fill 100 acres of open water with sediment to create much-needed marsh. And it built off of another project um, that was funded separately that created 600 acres of marsh. So currently, um, there's another large-scale marsh creation project underway called the Large-Scale Barataria Marsh Creation. Um, its draft plan is available for public comment, and it will seek to restore 1,200 acres of marsh and um, provide protection for surrounding communities as well as critical wildlife habitats. So there you go, Simone, marsh creation happening across the coast. Marsh creation, the good old steady, right? You know, um, but NERDA, to talk about that in itself, that's natural resources damage assessment. And that was a process, um, a very detailed process that they went through um, after the BP spill where they accounted for damages to natural resources, to birds, to fish, to the ocean. And so that is the most solid source of funding that goes directly towards the damage of natural resources. And so that is um, where Louisiana got most of their funding. And it's very important because that goes to directly address a natural resource that was damaged. Uh, The previous funding source, source, the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, is not really well known here in Louisiana until the BP spill, but they are a national organization, um, basically kind of like the national foundation um, for projects just as like just like this. So they're a really wonderful partner at NIFWIF um, that here in Louisiana takes care of barrier islands and diversions. Um, but NERDA is also a very, very vital funding source for us as we mitigate the damages from um, Deepwater Horizon because it is specifically to directly address those damages. Um, It does have federal partners and it has something called the TIG, the Trustee Implementation Group that oversees those projects. But those are Louisiana dollars spent to fix damages to Louisiana's natural resources. Very interesting. And we'll have to have some of the leaders from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation on the show in the future to talk about some of this work. Of course, our last funding stream that we highlight, last but certainly not least, is Restore funding through the Restore Council. Um, And so what's highlighted here is a project I know is also near and dear to your heart, but the theme is slowing saltwater's destructive destructive intrusion. And we're highlighting the Homa Navigational Canal Lock Complex. So at 110 feet wide and 800 feet long, this complex will tackle the persistent saltwater intrusion that is eaten away at freshwater marshes in Terrebonne Basin. Um, As you know, the Terrebonne Basin is experiencing some of the most severe land loss on the planet. So this project and the Restore Council has contributed $18.5 million to the design of the complex will help stop some of that saltwater intrusion and help protect those marshes. Um, so Restore Council, Restore Funding is another huge source of funding for some of this work. And of course, we've also highlighted the recent announcement that Restore Council has voted to Uh, fund the river reintroduction into Moripah Swamp, which is another vital restoration project that's going to benefit a huge area of land and vital habitat 
for uh, a number of species in addition to storm surge protection for communities. So Restore is also a, an important part of the mix, right, Simone? Definitely. Um, and, and people may not realize this, but Restore actually stands for something. It's resources and ecosystems sustainably, tourist opportunities and revived economies. And it was part um, of an act um, that dedicated those civil fines to um, the Gulf Coast. And that was back in 2012. And so there's a um, there was first a task force uh, and then there was a council that created. So it's a system where we have to work um, with the other states. Um, there's different pots of funding, as we call it. Some come directly to all the states and, and some are shared. And um, you're right, Home and Navigational Canal is, is certainly near and dear to my heart because it is in um, our part of the world. It is, um, while it is a major component of the Morganza to the Gulf um, hurricane protection system, um, the actual lot complex itself is um, a longstanding Louisiana coastal area project um, that does provide tremendous um, benefits to the hydrology of the area. So we get a two-for-one deal, basically, in that one. So um, it does provide uh, storm surge protection, but most importantly, in, in this case, it does um, keep the salt water out and keep the fresh water where it needs to be um, to help the, the wetlands in Terrebonne Parish. Frankly, those are the ones experiencing some of the most severe uh, land loss because of its um, it being cut off from the Mississippi and the Chafalaya rivers. Well, great to highlight that progress and those urgently needed projects that are being funded by the settlement. You can go to MississippiRiverDelta.org slash decade dash after dash disaster to learn more about the progress and also recommendations for how to build sustainable communities and ecosystems in the future. So another great show. I think the theme of our shows now is uh, making it work. We're doing the best we can in, in self-isolation <laughs> and we're glad to bring you this content. So thanks so much for listening and we we will continue to have shows in the weeks ahead, always on Delta Dispatches. Have a great week.